recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on May 5th to hit the internet on May 6th. The easiest way to get your hands on the Red Ticket Blues Podcast, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. Subscribe to all of them. This is, and you can follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at Red Ticket Blues. So this is the weekly edition of the Thursday Talk. I was lucky enough to speak to former NBA player and NBA champion Scott Pollard about his time in the NBA, in college at Kansas, guarding Shaquille O'Neal, safe spaces. There's a ton of things. We ran a little long, so let's just get through this and let's go right to the interview. He is the former NBA champion, Scott Pollard. Thank you for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Scott, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. That's great to hear. Uh, So you're in Indiana, correct? Yes, I live in uh, what I call, jokingly, I don't want to offend anybody, but we call it the Middle East of America because we're in the Eastern time zone. Yeah. Uh, and, and some people consider this the Midwest, which it's in the third of the country that is in the Eastern time zone. I don't know how anybody could refer to this place as the Midwest, so I call it the Middle East, jokingly. But yeah, it's Midwest. a great place. People live here. It's just not my hometown. No Gaza Strip or anything like that, so yeah, no, I understand. No. Uh so let's see. You're in Indiana. So let me. I got to ask you this then. Were you surprised that the Pacers said goodbye to Frank Vogel today? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because he is a great coach, and you don't want to let a great coach go. But no, because I know how Larry Bird works. <laughs> I Larry figured Bird, that uh, when he took the head coaching job uh, back in the late '90s, or early 2000s, he said, "I'm going to coach for three years, and then I'm done." because his belief is that, uh, you know, you get tired of the, the same head coach and you got to change things up. So as a control of the front front office, it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, he feels like he's as great as Frank is. Uh, it's time for a change. Yeah, he's, he's going to get a job real quick, real quick. I know I'm, I'm out here in Connecticut, and I know a lot of people uh, are really want him to, Phil Jackson, to pick up the phone and call Frank Vogel. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think he's going to get a lot of phone calls. I'm, yeah, I'm, personally, you know, I'm hoping the Sacramento Kings land him. Uh, you know, it'd be he'd be a great fit for the Knicks, but I don't know that he'd want to go there. I don't know who would want to go coach the Knicks. No, uh, I don't think so. I, right I don't. Now. I don't think anyone would want to go, and I don't think anyone's getting called outside of Kurt Rambis because uh, Phil Phil wants a guy that does Phil things. So I, I, yeah. you're right, though. I think he'd be good for the Kings. They, they need a good coach. Um, we'll talk about the Kings a little bit later. If, if one of your former teams. Now you became nationally known, national radar, when you went to the University of Kansas. I got to ask you, was this the choice that you wanted straight out of high school? I mean, did you look at this and say, that's where I'm going? Or were there, I mean, you're obviously recruited by other schools. Were there was anyone else really serious? I got recruited by a lot of people. Um, and I, I had my pick of anybody I wanted to go to. Um, my, and I don't mean to sound egotistical, it's just that was a fact. <clears throat> my um, choice, my first choice was to stay in the, in the state of California. I grew up in San Diego, that's home. Uh, and, and I felt like that's where I wanted to be. I did not want to be anywhere east. And uh, as luck would have it, I, you know, I took trips to Arizona, UCLA, uh, BYU to satisfy my mother. Um, and uh, I took a trip to Kansas, and I, I had a trip scheduled to LSU. Uh, but uh, I took a trip to UCLA, didn't like it, wasn't, wasn't the right fit for me. And they ended up winning a national championship in 1995 during my career. And uh, took a trip to Arizona, committed verbally because <laughs> they took me to a party and I was like, yes, everyone here is beautiful. I like this place. So I committed there and uh, they won and ended up being the team that knocked me out uh, my senior year, uh, not the university of Kansas out uh, of the national championship. Uh, well, the playoffs, not the, not the championship game, but uh, to get to the lead eight and they ended up winning it all. Uh, so two of the schools I visited uh, that I was considering going to, uh, one during my college career and, and uh, the team I chose Kansas uh, because of Roy Williams. Uh, I didn't, as I said, didn't want to go that far East. And, uh, but uh, Roy Williams is a heck of a guy. Uh, he's always been a guy that I've always looked up to, even though he's half my size and um, he, he's just a wonderful person. And, and then ultimately it came down to that. I had uh, every member of my family with the exception of my mother was recruited to play division one athletics. Uh, and so I had some, some family history there and some knowledge just from being related to my dad and four of my brothers uh, and my sister. So uh, they, uh, they having had that exposure and, and dealing with that uh, and going and having their coaches get fired. And then they, the new coach doesn't want them. I had that wealth of knowledge and, and I just thought, you know what, no matter what happens with Roy Williams, he's not going anywhere during my tenure. Right. And he's not going to make a decision that if I don't play, I'll respect it. 
Right, right. Say, you know, it's my fault. I, I will believe and trust in Roy. You know, uh, there's movies, there's books, there's everything about the recruiting process, and we all uh, process, and we all know the, the seedy underbelly that sometimes exists. Uh, what was your experience do, during the entire process? It's funny you mentioned that. I actually made a movie uh, that we're going to get in some festivals this fall. It's called The Association. Awesome. And part part of the plot is uh, dealing with college uh, athletics and shoe. Uh, not not exactly shoe sponsorships, but agents and how they are interfering with collegiate athletics and shortening uh, players' careers as a result. And uh, that's not the main theme of the movie, but it is part of the plot point. Uh, but it's loosely based on on my career, and I, I didn't have an agent throughout college. I was I was one of the, the few guys that that stayed four years of college and didn't get paid to go anywhere. I got offers uh, from some of the schools, but. Uh, Kansas did not, uh, give me any money, uh, to go to school there. And, um, so it, it was this, this movie, the association is, is loosely based on my life and experiences, but it's by means a biography, but we do discuss that. And, and, you know, to answer your question, yeah, the, there's a lot of things that go on in college basketball, um, whether it's agents or shoe companies or the AAU coach that, uh, has, has fostered this kid. Uh, through their junior high or high school years or both and gotten them to that university or got them with that shoe company early on because his team is sponsored by Nike, for example, or whatever. Um, And then there's agents involved with that company. So you may not even know that you're pretty much, uh, you're on train tracks to, to sign with a certain agent at the age of 14. If you're a standout player, 15, if you're a standout player, and you don't even know it sometimes, you know, some of these kids, they're, they're playing on an AAU team and they're traveling, they're getting free shoes here or free gear here. And, and they think it's like part of the, you know, Oh, it's cool because we're sponsored and we're traveling around. Uh, but then when it comes time to pick a college, all of a sudden it's like, well, you're going here. You can eliminate all the, yeah. You can eliminate all the Adidas schools because you've been sponsored by Nike for this long. And there's an agent involved in that with the AAU coach that the player may, again, may not even know about uh, so that's kind. That's a subplot of the movie uh, that we talk about. That that a lot of people don't like to talk about. And, and if 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 the movie ends up being good, uh, I don't think the NBA is going to like it very much, and I don't think college basketball is going to like it very much. And, and that's kind of the point uh, to to try to tell those stories that get untold or that don't get told. Sorry, uh, because <clears throat> you know as, as many Kobe Bryant's and LeBron James, the high school kids that jump to the NBA that you hear about, which is a handful of them that end up being good. Uh, there's thousands of kids that get mixed up in that system and washed out the bottom and they end up with no college education, no chance at life. They barely have a high school diploma that probably was given to them because their AAU coach or high school coach fixed their grades uh, to get them legal or, or eligible to play. Yeah, it's, it's all so a facade. You're, you're, I mean, it's it's you know what? I, not to interrupt you. I mean, I'm, I'm no, kinda, no, you're. I'm kind of dating myself when I look at it, and you know, the process is like the movie Blue Chips, but it's so much more than that. In a fact, where I mean, I, I've mentioned this book on the podcast before. I think I had somebody from the USA Today, and I was talking to them about this book, the book about about Demetrius Walker and several other people. It's called They Played Their Hearts Out, and it is all about that entire process about how they're getting some kid from the age of eight. And uh, you know what? He just doesn't pan out. He goes to college. I think he went to New Mexico State or, or New, University of New Mexico. And you know what? It just it doesn't happen to him. And they just sort of discard it. Uh, like you said, he doesn't really have that education. He can't do what he can do for everyone else, what they thought he'd do. And then all of a sudden, he's, for lack of a better term, he's just trash to them. Yeah. And, and some of those players that wise up and say, hey, no, <clears throat> for example, I'm on the track uh, as an AAU player, and I'm sponsored by my my team is sponsored by Adidas, and there's an agent involved with my AAU coach and saying, hey, you know, uh, he's got to go to an Adidas school, and that player wises up and goes, eh, you know what, I'm not going to let the shoe decide which college I'm going to go to, and you said it, they get discarded, and they may not even understand that that's why because they went against what team was, what company was sponsoring them or what agent was having them sponsored by a certain uh, shoe company, uh, you know, and it is sad and it yeah. is, it is horrible. And there, there are so many players whose lives are ruined as a result. And so again, it, my movie isn't, 
that's not the focus of the movie. That's part of it. Uh, it's, it's one of the, the plots. And what we're trying to do now is edit it down so that it makes sense because there, we, we did throw a lot of things in there. So we're still working on it. It's a work in progress. But uh, awesome. yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a theme that we're trying to get out there because I, having lived through it again, you know, I was fortunate to come from a basketball family and have so many people in my family go through it. There were a lot of things I could avoid and didn't even pay attention to because I knew where that track would lead me. I never played AAU basketball. I never played year round. My dad wouldn't let us. And I'm a firm believer in that. I got four kids of my own, just had my fourth last Friday and they're not going to play year round sports ever. I, I will not allow it because I want them to be kids first, students, kids, and then maybe if they decide to play some extracurricular activities, play some sports, they can do that. But right. it's not going to dominate their life. And more importantly, it's not going to dominate my life. So those kids, like, okay, so what you're doing, you're raising your kids a different way, which is probably the right way. But let's those kids that make it to college and or they're, they're sent to that college that they want to go to, we hear this question all the time. There's, I don't know if there's a perfect there's – a, there's a yes or no, but what's the perfection behind it? And that, of course, is could, should college athletes be paid? Well, of course they should, but then then you're falling into a trap of how do you pay them evenly? Because there's always going to be those schools, like the football schools, they rule college athletics. The football schools, the big-time football programs, because they have the most money. So if, for example, you allow every team in the SEC to pay students, well, they're making 10 times the amount of money because their football program than, say, the – Pacific Northwest Conference or whatever. I don't know, some Mountain West. Or even at the same school, it. if you want to say, you know, the basketball team, well, how does the uh, fencing team fit into that as well? I mean, there has to be some sort exactly. of checks and balances. And, and how do you do that when there's teams in New York where the cost of living is t- triple or 10 times what it is in Kansas? Or, you know, there, that's, there, there's so many variables involved. And I think, I don't think that's at all any reason that the NCAA has thought of, of of not doing a stipend because I think it's just a, I think the NCAA is is very much like the government where it's just like, well, we're just going to keep doing stuff as long as we can get free labor. Why would we change that? But uh, they, they make up a lot of cute stories of why they don't pay players, but that is a fair argument. If they were to say, well, we can't regulate it to say fencing versus football or basketball versus women's basketball or, you know, whatever, sport, softball or non-revenue sports. Uh, let's just make it short. So, and then when you're talking conference to conference, the Big 12 is now nine teams. And the only reason there's that many is because Texas and Oklahoma decided to keep the Big 12 together instead of leaving. And the reason that happened was because the Big 12 allowed Texas to keep the Longhorn Network, which yep. is a subsidiary of ESPN. I'm sure you know that. Oh, yeah. And that's the only reason that the Big 12 kept those two big giant football programs in it without those two teams. The big 12 is the big seven. <laughs> and at this point, and, and you're going, Whoa, there's, where's, where's the revenue coming from? So it's hard to regulate. It's hard to keep the, the stability, but absolutely they're, they're, they should be paid. My solution is that, and I, and what I think is going to happen, and I'm not saying I want it to happen, but what I think is going to happen is the four power conferences, uh, the SEC, the Big Ten, and either the Big 12, and it's, the Pac-12 is going to be one of them. It's either going to be the Big 12 will be the fourth, or say maybe the ACC jumps up. But whoever gets the 16 teams, whichever four conferences gets the 16 teams first, right. they're going to be the Super Four. And at that point, they'll be able to write their own ticket, their own television contracts, their own bowl schedule, their own tournament schedule, because they'll have 64 teams for basketball. And then you're talking about why do we even have the NCAA regulating us? Exactly. And then you're talking about semi-professional sports. And then their corporations, in and of, their, their athletic departments will be separate entities on the college campus. And that's the way I see it going eventually. I don't know how, how long it's going to take us to get there, but I've been talking about this for, shoot, seven or eight years, uh, back when I did a radio show uh, in Kansas post-retirement. And uh, that's, that's where I see it going. That's where I see the – the future of college sports, it'll become semi-professional uh, players will be paid to go to certain schools. And even the players that aren't on the revenue sports are still going to get uh, some kind of stipend uh, because their football and basketball team makes so many millions of dollars for the university that 
you know, softball players and rowing teams are, are going to have the best equipment, best facilities, and, and also get some money on the side. Yeah, they're, they're just going to be schools uh, left by the wayside for sure. Uh, quick question, like when you so when you were at Kansas, I mean, and and unfortunately, Kansas has this reputation of just not you know falling short of the big big winning the championship, especially after being number one in the rankings uh, for for you know throughout most of the season. Now, when you were at Kansas, and you know this started to become a a theme, uh, unfortunately. Did you guys talk about this on the team? Did did Roy Williams address this with you guys, or was this sort of a, a unspoken underbelly that you know we really didn't need to address? I didn't think about it at that time. I, you know, we were number one from start to finish my senior year. Uh, we didn't lose any games uh, until we lost a double overtime thriller at Missouri, uh, and I happened to be uh, injured for that game. I wasn't playing. Uh, but Ray's put in a heck of a performance. It was it was one of the most amazing uh, college basketball games I'd ever seen, uh, and, and I try to divorce myself from the emotion because I'm on the team. But it was still a, a phenomenal basketball game, and we lost that one. Um, and then we ended up losing to Arizona and uh, to get to the Elite Eight, and, and uh, so we only had two losses that year. But we didn't talk about that. You know, it was it was let's win this game and then let's see what's next. Let's win this game and then let's see what's next. And that was our mentality. We weren't talking about any jinxes because Jack Vaughn was on the preseason cover of Sports Illustrated. Right, I remember or that. the fall preview or whatever. Uh, and then I, they put me on the cover at the beginning of the tournament. Uh, so we had the double jinx, I guess, if you want to talk about it. But Roy, as superstitious as he was, um, you know, he would just say, put it out of your head. We're here to play basketball. You're not going to win or lose a game because you're on the cover of a magazine. You're going to win or lose a game because you didn't execute or you didn't box out or you didn't run the play or you know or or you didn't play your your tail off as he would say. So I never really thought about any kind of jinx uh, because there are certain things I'm superstitious about, but hard work is not one of them. And mm-hmm. I believe that we worked harder than everybody in the nation and played through pain. Uh, Jock Vaughn played most of the season with a sore wrist that never really was truly healed that he broke in the preseason. Jared Haas had a broken wrist throughout most of the season, didn't know it, and played with it. That was his shooting hand. Uh, and turned out he needed surgery after the season was over to fix his wrist, and that may or may not have hurt his chances of getting to the next level because it was a shooting hand. But, you know, there was other guys that played injured as well. But, um, you know, when you only work hard and you only care about wins, the rest of that stuff kind of fades away and you don't even think about it. It just becomes, well, I worked harder than everybody else and I get lucky because of that. Yeah, and you and you listened. You worked hard, and you talk about the next level. Uh, the 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 new the new obviously it's not a new trend. Actually, it's quite common. It's the one and done in college, and it's changed changed the way the game is played. It's changed the NBA. Now, as a guy who played for four years in Lawrence, would you have been ready for the NBA life after one year of college? No, and, and I didn't even want to go. I, I really really didn't. it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't an option for me. You didn't so want to go to the NBA. Why. Not no, not after one year, or two years. Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I loved college. I, I was having a blast. I loved going to class. My focus was getting a getting a degree, which I did. Uh, I graduated a few credits uh, shy of a master's, uh, which I would have achieved had I taken one more class and student taught uh, for a semester. Then I would have been a, had a master's in education and become a full time teacher. But um, you know that was my goal was to get an education for free because I came from a family of of, uh, you know, lower income. And, and if I hadn't been for a scholarship, I wouldn't have got a college education. So that was my mentality first. And second was play basketball and enjoy college and become a man. And Roy Williams uh, was a guy that helped me achieve that goal. And, and on top of that, he also taught me uh, how to play basketball a little bit. I ended up being a first round draft pick. So, right. um, you know, it, it was absolutely everything. I wouldn't go back and do it over any other way in college because everything happened uh, the right way for me. The league itself now, um, and it probably did a large transition. Oh, I'm not sure of how much a transition from your rookie year to your last year, but it, the product now is it's much softer, for better or worse, with rule changes. And compared to the 80s, we talk about, I mean, it's a whole new game. Uh, how much have you seen watching games now? How much has it changed from when you played? The game is always changing, and that's a fact. And I'm not going to sit here and be one of those, oh, it's better in my day. Right, right. Have to worry about touching somebody. If somebody went to the basket, we knocked them on the basket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the game has always evolved. It's always changed, and it always will change. 
the, the emphasis in the NBA right now is scoring. They want to see more scoring. They don't want to see people grinding it out and scoring 79 points. And, and I agree with that. It's the NBA, and people want to see the guys score a lot of points. They're not worried about somebody that can stop them. You think that's why there's a, you think that's why a lack of dominant big men nowadays? Absolutely. It's, it's the game has evolved and, and the big men now are facing the basket. All they yeah. can do is run in and tip in misses that are catch alley oops and dunk them. And that's all they want them for. Mm. There's no, there's nobody that, that stands in the post and posts up and has great moves in the post. Now, I, you know, I'm, I say nobody, I'm exaggerating. Right, right. There are a couple, it's a, it's a handful now. For the most part, it's, uh, you know, and, and this happened while I was in the NBA. Dwight Howard was one of those guys, Amari Stoudemire, uh, you know, some of those guys that were the, the guys that, that, if you want to call them the forefathers of that type of center, that all they do is block shots, rebound. They don't have any post game to speak of. Uh, they don't really shoot outside very well. And, and uh, what I would like to see is, is more guys that can shoot, like a Vlade Divac. You know, Vlade had the inside game, of course, but if, if you're not going to have an inside game, at least be able to shoot some threes or shoot some long-distance shots instead of just simply being able to block shots and rebound and catch an LU. Right. At least have some kind of offensive presence. Don't be Ben Wallace. You know, right. be, be somebody that can – and I don't mean to knock Ben Wallace. He's a great player. I love playing against him. He's a great player. But I just mean, you know, don't be a guy that's just a liability on the offensive end of the court. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be two guards and three forwards on every team, or three guards and two forwards on every team. There won't even be a center anymore. The 7-4, the 7-5 guys are going to be eliminated from the game. They'll be dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, the 7-footers, I mean, the, who the most I – mean, got, got, you got guys like DeMarcus Cousins or probably the most dominant big man, if you really want to classify him as that, and it would probably be Anthony Davis. But, I mean, he's not your, your stereotypical big man. The guy shoots. He runs the break. Uh, I think he is improving on his post game. I think once he puts that together, I mean, he's going to be unstoppable. Uh, let's see. What, what did I want to ask you here? No, about you here. The once you got into league for a few years, you became a little. You came eccentric, different hairstyles, facial hair. Was this a side of you that always existed, or was this sort of a kid growing up in the NBA and then saying, "Hey, I'm having fun." No, I, I dyed my hair the first time in seventh grade. <laughs> okay, uh, I had a mohawk. I had a mohawk in eighth grade. Um, I, I dressed like a girl for Halloween in eighth grade one time. I, people thought I was my sister, uh, who was a tall girl and, and very beautiful, I might add. But um, <laughs> we, uh, I, I've always, I've always kind of done my own thing. And uh, you know, I, Roy once made the observation because I, I showed up to media day at, at my sophomore year of, at Kansas with my hair dyed blonde and it was short, kind of buzz, but it was dyed blonde. And uh, he just said, "Son, if it was anybody else, I'd have told you to go home and shave that head." But um, that was going to be know, my follow-up question. Like, he, we didn't really see a ton of that at Kansas. Was, I mean, you you mentioned how much an influence Roy Williams was on you, but I mean, was he part of the reason maybe we didn't see it as much at uh, in Lawrence? I think you saw more of it in Kansas. Actually, oh, I never really? painted my nails in the NBA. I painted my nails through college, and then I never painted them one day in the NBA. Oh, okay. Uh, so in the NBA, it was just hairstyles, but. Um, you know, he, somebody asked him about it in that press conference and, and he kind of said that basically what I just said, he said, you know, there's some kids that would be out there doing it for attention or doing it for the wrong reasons. And I know Scott Pollard is the kind of kid that's just celebrating life. And it doesn't mean that he can't just have a normal haircut and be happy. He can do that too, but he just chooses to change it up once in a while. And you know what? It makes me smile. <laughs> you, do, you do a mean Roy Williams. That's good. Uh, so what? A little bit. So, good, good. Go ahead. Uh, the. Uh, I was just gonna say. I'm no, sorry. Go, go, go. No, no, we're, we're both talking over each other. It's a lot of fun. Um, no, um, I was going to jump into uh, the, the Sacramento team. I mean, that's probably the most well-known team you played for. It seemed like it seemed like all the pieces fit there. You had your, your veteran and, and, and Vladi Divac. You had, you, had, you had the unhappy superstar, now happy, and Chris Webber. You had the, uh, the flashy point guard and Jason. Well, you know, everyone there. Um, did you guys have as much fun playing together as it appeared? And did Rick Adelman ever smile? <laughs> uh, yes, we. You're correct. We had a, a cast of characters that seemed to fit every year, even though a few of the pieces came and went. Um, you know, every year that I was there, five seasons, <clears throat> we had so much fun, and it was the the freedom that we had as as individual players because of the way Rick Adelman coached basketball allowed us to win games and be happy because 
we didn't at that point we didn't care about getting numbers or getting shots. And if you did, you got you got extricated. You, you'd find yourself on the bench because if you took too many shots, then we would take you out. We would say, hey, no, you're out of here. We're not going to pass you the ball because you're more, more worried about getting shots than you are winning. And we care about winning on this team. So if you're going to be that guy, you're out. And that didn't happen. As a result, guys came in that, that were notorious black holes that, that never passed the ball, became passers, guys that – that uh, didn't have as much offense, uh, say, in other programs like myself, uh, I scored more there. I shot the ball outside the key there, and, and I made moves in the post there more than I did on any other team I played on uh, with the exception of college. But, you know, and it was because there was that freedom, and Rick Adelman never smiled, uh, but it was great. You know, we, they just uh, closed down the, the building we played in, Marco Arena, which yeah. is now like Sleep Trainer Arena or something. Yeah, something um, like and Rick was there. And for the last home game and Rick was there and I got a chance to talk to him on the bus back after the game. And it was just so great to talk to him again. Um, you know, without the, the coach and player monikers in front of us, you know, it's been 15 years uh, since I've seen him uh, and played for him, but you know, it was just great to talk to him again and see him. And he, he just, he, he trusted his players and that's what a player's coach is to me. It, it's not, Oh, I give him a day off every day and I, I let him go out and do whatever they want to do that's not a player's coach either. You got to have some rules and, and Rick had rules, but the freedom he gave us on the court allowed us to have our own discipline off the court. We'd go out together and hang out, but we all made sure everybody was being good. You, you know, we didn't have the team going out all night long, every night on the road and doing crazy stuff because we knew that we had to take care of business and we owed our teammates uh, the, our best. So do whatever you're going to do, but make sure you're doing it when it counts on the court. When the bell rings, you better be ready to go. And, and everybody was for the most part. And that's what was so great about the team and that chemistry. Uh, and it showed in the way we played. That's why we had a following. You know, we'd show up in Milwaukee and people would be waiting for the Sacramento Kings. Really? You kidding me? For Sacramento Kings <laughs> versus Milwaukee. We're getting off the bus and people are waiting at the hotel for us. That's, that's weird awesome. for the Sacramento Kings in the Eastern Conference, period, yeah. let alone in like a small city like Milwaukee. Oh man, the uh, that's true. That that squad, I mean, they they had a, a ton of personality, a ton of flair, and you guys met the Lakers three three straight years in the playoffs, and and obviously you, no secret, you guys didn't like each other, and you, you hear a lot of former players these days talk about, uh, you know, guys are way too buddy buddy now. There's all congratulating, and you know, we're hanging out after the game, social media, Instagram, taking pictures together. Uh, you hear that from people like Bird, Jordan, Barkley. Now, do you prefer that now? Prefer more buddy buddy with your opponents. You prefer Lakers Kings or somewhere in between. Uh, I, I'll go with the old school on that one. That that's one thing I will take a stand and say. My day, we wanted right. to kick the crap out of the guy we were playing against, and after the game, I'd shake your hand and I wouldn't talk to him. And that's if we won. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I I I was never the guy that was hugging. And I've played against guys I played with in college or on other teams. You know, playing for five different teams. You know, I'd meet guys. I didn't go out with them the night before the game. I didn't go out with them after the game unless it was like one, there was like one or two, you know, maybe a couple guys that were really, really close friends. But most, most guys, it was like, even if I played college basketball with you, Hey man, I'll, I'll be in touch, but on the court, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm, I'm going to tell all my teammates your weakness because I want to beat your team. And then afterwards I'll shake your hand, but we're not hanging out afterwards. So yeah, I'm, I'm old school when it comes to that because I I can't stand it. I can't stand guys hugging before and after every game. And it's not it's not just that. basketball. It's all sports too. It seems like, and especially in baseball now too. I mean, these guys are sitting there almost dancing and batting practice before the game. It just it's I I, I wanted to hear your take on. It. I mean, I'm just a fan, a spectator, and I don't want to have opinions for people that have played the game. But it is refreshing hearing you say that. Well, it's it's competition, and and I think that's where the lines are getting blurred for our kids nowadays. They don't know the difference between competition and being a jerk or bullying somebody. You know, I want to go out and kick your butt on the court. Like, you know, say I'm playing against uh, my college roommate all four years, John Vaughn, one of my best friends. We're born a day apart. Uh, you know, when we played against each other in the NBA, we never spoke. We wanted to kick That's the crap out of each crazy. other. Crazy. And, and that was it. We didn't talk before the game. We would acknowledge each other and we would talk crap to each other during the game. Anytime we were on the court at the same time, we absolutely went at each other. And I would foul him 
in different places, and I would try to get away with as many pushes or shoves I could get away with because, we, you know, obviously he's a point guard and I was a big man. But any chance I could to go run, and he knew it, so he'd stay away from me, and that was the point. And that's what I love. But kids nowadays, they're thinking, okay, well, if I disagree, if I did that to say, I don't know. Oh, you're a poor sport. Yeah, then maybe they're like, oh, my gosh, what a bully, what a jerk. It's like, no, 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 I just want to win. I love that guy, but I still want to beat him. Right. And, and and that's respect. That is that is getting it done like a man. That's not bullying. That's not being a poor sport. That's competition. That's how you get better. That's how you win. And that's what I think is, is the line is getting blurred. And that's why kids not in sports, even in just regular school or whatever, they think if somebody says something bad about them, they instantly have to go to their safe space. And it's ruining our society because you can't disagree with somebody without a gun being pulled. I can't, and, I and can't agree with you more about all this, but keep going. I'm sorry. No, just that, that's it. I mean, I'll be, end up repeating myself, but you know, I want our kids to learn how to debate and disagree with somebody and learn something from somebody that believes the exact opposite. It's called debating kids. It's not called fighting. It's called learning something like, Hey, I totally disagree with you, but I want to understand your position and I'm going to sit here and listen to it and then respond. And I'm not going to pull a gun or say you're an idiot or start calling you names because I disagree with you. I'm just going to say, all right, you know what? Those are your views. These are mine. I disagree because this, you disagree because that, Hey, I learned something tonight. I still don't agree with you, but I don't hate you. Right. It sets a very bad precedent, I think, as well, because kids are going to grow up like that. And you know what? All of a sudden, those kids are going to be adults with that same frame of mind. And things are not going to get accomplished in daily life with everyone thinking that everyone's against them and they need safe spaces at, you know, 35 years old. Sadly, I already have people in my life like that. They're not my friends, but I have people I have to deal with very regularly uh, that, that think that because I tell them something, that I'm being a jerk or a bully and I'm just sitting there going, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not physically intimidating you. I am not trying to make you feel poorly about yourself. I'm just stating the truth in my opinion. And that is valid because it's my opinion. And if you have a valid opinion that differs from mine, that doesn't mean that you're bullying me or intimidating me. It's just, we don't agree. That's fine. But there's adults. I'm already, we're already there. We, We don't have to wait for a generation to pass. We are already there where there's 35 and 40 year old people walking around Carmel, Indiana, that if you disagree with them, they instantly call you a name and go back to their safe space and go, that guy's a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. Uh, You know, I I talked before, I said, you know, I don't want to date myself with uh, talking about blue chips, but a lot of young people only know this guy from the TNT studios or icy hot commercials or Buick commercials. And there's no way he fits in that Buick, but uh, thank you. Was that the what was the horror show that is that was guarding Shaquille O'Neal like? Hey, when he was in his prime, there was nobody more dominant in the NBA at that in those years. Um, I got to guard my childhood hero Patrick Ewing. I got to guard Akeem Olajuwon towards the end of his career. And talk about lightning fast! That guy was ridiculous. Um, I got to guard Charles Barkley. I got to guard. Um, you know, Tim Duncan and I are the same age, but he became a Hall of Famer and I became a role player. <laughs> and he's but, still playing. Um, it's insane. And he's still playing. It, it drives me nuts. What <laughs> swimming all through your, your childhood years will do as opposed to playing basketball all the way through your childhood years. Like yeah. I, uh, he, he was a swimmer until he was 16. Then he right. was like, oh, I grew up, but I'll play basketball. Uh, but I got to guard David Robinson. I got to guard the legends of the game. I played with Rick Mahorn. I played with Joe Dumars. I played with Grant Hill. Um, so, you know, the list goes on, but my point is all those guys were amazing in their own right. I was on the same court with Michael Jordan and I got to see him play. I never guarded him directly, but I got to be on the same court with him while I was playing. That's amazing. Right. Guarding Shaq was, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, we saw them every year. We played them in the preseason in Vegas every year for five years, five seasons. We played them in four times during the regular season and three of my five seasons, we played them in, in postseason tournaments that are, series that I believe all of them lasted seven games. I'm not sure about that, but if not, they were six or seven games. None of them were sweeps. So I was very familiar. I think I guarded him more than anybody else in the NBA during those times because nobody else played him as much. And it was rough, man. The guy was, you know, he lied. He was 315 or, or 325 or whatever. And, and my dad was 380 before he passed. I know what 380 feels like. And I told him that. I was, Big boy, you're 380. Easy. You're 7 <laughs> one. He just laughed. <laughs> no, 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 big fella, no. 
But, you know, as much as I pushed and pulled and fouled and, and did dirty stuff to him, he never lost his cool with me. And I, and I think it was respect. I think he understood that I wasn't trying to hurt him. I was just outmatched. And I knew it, and he knew it, and he dominated me 90% of the time. And then 10% of the time, I felt like, and that wasn't true, but I felt like I could actually compete a little bit with him. <laughs> yeah, it, it you know not not just you watching anyone guard him over and over again throughout the the course of a game, let alone a series, it it hurt me sometimes with him just turning around and you know wasn't even trying to bully down low. It was just how massive and strong he was. Just turning that shoulder, it looked just painful when when that shoulder was turned and he made a step towards the basket. I. I applaud you for doing it. I can tell it. you the truth. It, it was painful because one time with that, uh, he, he did his move, the, the dribble and then the, the travel that he did, uh, the, the backward two-step in between dribbles, and then he would dribble again, and then he would swing those arms to, over his left shoulder and go in for the, either the, the short hook or, or the dunk. And uh, he came at, did that move, and I, I zigged and he zagged, and, man, he caught me square in the grill with, a, with an elbow and knocked me out. And I hit the ground. Uh, and I don't remember this, but I, I guess uh, Chris Weber was right there, and he was I, apparently I was screaming, "I'm going to kill him!" Um, and then I got, I finally came to, and I woke up, and I got up, out, and, and the referee called the foul on me, and then I really wanted to kill him, <laughs> <laughs> but not Shaq, the ref. Right, right. But no, um, no it was it was uh, it was so hard guarding him, but it was some of the greatest memories of my career because, you know, I. People make fun of me on social media or whatever, like, oh, man, Shaq used to dunk on your face. Like, yeah, true. I got to guard one of the all-time greats in the history of the league. I mean, guys that guarded Wilt Chamberlain, guys that guarded my dad tell me stories. You know, when I was younger and I was in Utah, I'd, or I'd go back and visit Utah, man, guys would come up to me and go, are you Poison's kid? And I'm like, yeah, man, I used to pay extra just to watch him play. He was so good. So, you know, the guys that get to play against the, the ultimate level uh, in their position, they get to, they get a little piece of that glory too. And, and I'm not saying I'm anything special, but it does feel really great to have spent a career guarding some of my, my childhood heroes and a guy that, that is going to be go down as one of the all-time greatest centers in the history of the game. And that's Shaquille O'Neal. You know what? You're not going to admit this and that's okay. Um, game six. 2002 Western Conference Finals. I don't know why I've written three. But I'll say it most, most likely was fixed. Tim Donahue actually just said the other day, 100% of refs bet on the uh, NBA, which I don't know what his credibility is like, seeing if you admitted to fixing games in the first place. But let me ask you this. As the disparity in fouls started to mount, were you and your teammates wondering, like, what what the hell is going on here? Absolutely. And, and – it hurt our ego. There was a lot more during that whole series that was shady, you know? Uh, but for example, the rule now at the end of every quarter where they replay a game, or I'm sorry, if a last second shot goes up at any quarter, that game uh, four of that series, Samaki Walker hit a half court buzzer beater that was way after the, the buzzer and it's documented. It's been there, but it counted. And game four is the one that Vlade Divac tipped the ball out to Robert Horry to knock down that three. That's right. Which wouldn't wouldn't have made a difference had Samaki Walker's half court shot not been counted, which it legally wasn't. So there were a lot of things in that series that didn't the ball didn't bounce our way. The bottom line though is is, is no matter what happened in game six and, and at halftime of that game we were just sitting there going, Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? All right, that's enough sorry sorry talk. Let's win this game. Let's go out and beat them and the refs. If that's how you're going to think about it, if you're thinking the referees are against us, let's go beat all eight of them. So we didn't feel sorry for ourselves for very long. We went out there, and then in the second half, we had a much better attitude about it. When Kobe is being guarded by Mike Bibby on that inbounds play, he flat out elbows Mike Bibby in the, on, on the face oh, and God. knocks him down Brutal. onto the ground. Gets the ball, and they call the foul on Mike. You know, that again, we're laughing. Instead of you know running up to the referee and getting a technical foul and make the situation worse, we're like, oh, my gosh, all right, hey. Let's beat all eight of them. Let's beat all eight of them. So that, that was our mentality, and we still lost that game. And, and in the end, we had Lawrence Funderburg guarding Shaquille O'Neal because everybody else was fouled out or, or, or couldn't foul, guard him because Chris had five, so we couldn't put Chris on him because we needed Chris to stay in the game. So, you know, we're, we felt like we were going against all odds. And, and no matter how you feel, whether it was 
you know, if you want to use the term fixed or whatever, you can, people can argue that all day long in that series, but we still had game seven. We had home court advantage. We were, we proved ourselves to be the best team in the league. We had the best record in the league. And that's why you get the home court advantage. And we went home in game seven and we laid an egg. We didn't hit threes. We didn't execute personally. And unfortunately, unfortunately I had a good game uh, and I don't know why, but you know, I actually had a pretty good game that game, but everybody else sucked. It's actually, it's, <laughs> and, it's funny you bring that up. I think if people read, cause you know, game six, they look at that as this, whatever, you know, connotation you want to attach to it. It's a, it's a, famous game it, it kind of reminds me as i'm just sitting here it's also that i don't know if you're a baseball fan but the 98 1986 world series i mean the ball goes through buckner's legs i think a lot of people thought you know i look back at it now and think that was the end of the world series when in reality there was a game seven that boston lost as well uh and that's that's what i try to tell people because you can pull out all the conspiracy theories you want and i and i do have to mention there's a, there's a, a, a seven or eight part series that, that uh, if you Google NFL ranking and Sacramento Kings, NFL ranking is the, is the YouTuber that made this series and he made it years ago or she, I, don't I think know I is. may have seen this actually. When, if, if I watch that, I cry because it, it breaks down the whole series, uh, including Samaki Walker's shot and, and Horry's shot and, and the foul calls and Shaquille O'Neal stepping over the free throw line on 13 of 15 attempts and, you know, making them all. And, and he, the bottom line is he made them. But, um, you know, it, it, it all boils down to we still had game seven at home, like you're supposed to. It's supposed to equalize it. You get home court advantage because you earned it. So you get more games at home. And we had the best crowd in the NBA. And I know that's a trite term, but it's true in Sacramento. Those crowds were nothing. There, there was nobody else in the NBA doing it like Sacramento Kings fans in those days. La- last question. Okay, go ahead. Go. No, no, I was nope, going to say, I was going to say, <laughs> say, last question about that series. Was it the worst officiated? You don't have to uh, take a you know stand on, like you said, the fix. Was it the worst officiated series you'd ever seen? I'm going to tell you the truth. There was some changes made in the referees after that series. There, okay. was, there was more regulations put on them. As I mentioned, the rule change of, of every shot at the end of a quarter is reviewed now because of that series. And that's a referee mistake. They counted a shot that shouldn't have counted in game four. Um, so yes, there, there were more rules put on the referees, more reviews put on the referees. And we found out about it next year, the next fall, because the referees come and visit every NBA team and they talk about the emphasis on this year. So they say, well, you know, last year, it seems like a lot of guys were getting away with three seconds. So this year, that's going to be a focus and we're going to call it maybe too much early, but we'll back off as the season goes on and make it fair. So we're not missing too many of them. So, you know, there was things like that that we knew had trickled down from our series specifically as opposed to somebody else's series or, 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 or the regular uh, season and the other NBA games that because of that series, there were changes in the, in the refereeing or the focus of the referees. Yeah, you know, uh, at the very least, they got that out of it. I know that doesn't help in that series whatsoever, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I, I – I, the rest of your career, I know that injuries played a large part, unfortunately. And uh, at, but fortunately, you were able to get that championship your last year with Boston. Uh, how rough was it sitting there watching it happen and not being an active, well, not being a very uh, a large participant at all? September of 2007, I signed with the, the Celtics and I went over there to play some pickup games and pick out a place to live. And I'm playing pickup games, and I rolled my ankle really bad, really bad. And I've done it before, but this one blew up. And I thought, man, that sucks. Uh, kept playing, of course. And uh, after the games are over, we, we get done, and I go in, and I cut, cut off my tape, and the trainer's like, what the hell? And I just said, no, no, it's cool. I'm a bleeder. I turned it one of the first games. No big deal. Just I, I'll be good tomorrow. He's like, what? And so – that, in, that went into training camp. They did an MRI on it in training camp. They actually sent me home. We went to Rome and then went to England. Well, in Rome, the general manager, Danny Ainge, saw my ankle, and he was like, you're going home. And, and we had already decided that it was worth it because they had already done the MRI, um, and they knew that it was a while before I was going to be cleared to play, and that traveling over there wasn't going to take weeks longer to heal. It might be a day or two longer because of the flight, you know, when you fly, you smoke a little bit. Right. Anyway, long story short, the, the, the doctor, I got back, they did another MRI and he looked at it and he said, look, you're getting surgery. You can do it now. And you're going to miss probably four months of this season, 
or you can try to make it through the season and, and get it at the end of the season after the season's over. And I said, well, of course I'm not going to miss four months voluntarily and get the surgery now. I'm going to play it. I'm going to play I'm going to play the rest of the season, no matter what. And I'm going to win a championship in the NBA finally. And I'm, I was going to, re- I retired after 10 years anyway, the year before I got to the finals with um, Cleveland. And, and I was like, I'm done. 10 years is my goal. Got to the finals, got to the Western conference finals, got to the Eastern conference finals three times. I'm good. And, um, Boston called, signed, played through February. It gave out. I, I, I ruptured a tendon in my left leg, uh, in my calf. And I thought I popped my Achilles tendon, but anyway, it was in February, Guardy Jack, uh, playing against the Suns, And, uh, I faked it. I went to the Portland the next night, uh, and didn't tell anybody that I couldn't push off my left ankle. <laughs> and I faked it through layup lines and I went through, um, probably the half of the first quarter and I was boxing out Joel Prisbilla and the ball went over my head and I couldn't jump at all. And Doc Rivers called a timeout because Joel got the ball and I fouled him and he got an and one or something. And he comes over and I come over to the timeout and he goes, man, you can't jump. I said, I never could Doc. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, now you, you're sitting down. There's something wrong. And I went into the trainer and I was like, I'm fine. He goes, no, you're done. You're going home. Uh, you, you pulled the wool over my eyes, but I can tell you can't run. So you're going home. They sent me home from the trip and I had to get surgery and it ended my career. But, uh, you know, I got two ankles out of it because my, my left one was the one. Uh, but after I got into a boot at my left ankle, I said, well, you might as well just take the right one and do it too, because it feels the exact same way. They did the MRI and it was exactly the same way. Um, so they did my right, my right ankle, uh, as soon as I could hobble on my left one. And so when the, when the playoff times came around, it was hard, man. And I got mad. They signed PJ Brown to take nine minutes, uh, and and it was just it was frustrating. It was so hard, but you know, I got a ring. And, you got you got hardware out for, of it. Yep, for my high school teams, I played the postseason. And my my sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, all four years of college, only missed Detroit. Was the only team I was ever on that never played in the postseason. Starting with my sophomore year of high school, playing varsity basketball. So I was very fortunate to be a part of winning programs my entire career. Uh, and, and, uh, so I wear my Boston Celtics championship ring for all those teams that I was on, including high school, college, and, and the NBA teams that, that other teams that I was on that should have won, but never did. So you got the NBA career behind you now, and I know you just did, uh, you were just on survivor. Uh, so you got, I mean, you, you did that. I mean, is there things like, uh, survivor TV show appearances in the future? You got the association, uh, and I know you've done some color commentating in the past. So what does the future hold for Scott Pollard? You know, I'm I'm always up for for what's next. I I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, some of it pays bills, and some of it's just for charity purposes or or to to keep my name out there for more opportunities. But um, the the things that that drive me are, are taking care of my family, being with my family, and so uh, uh, there's certain things that I've turned down because uh, I'd have to be away from my family too much, like I was when I was playing in the NBA and for, for a far smaller paycheck. So, <laughs> um, I bet. but there, there will be a time I, I'm sure that, that some, somebody will come up with an offer. That's, that's enough money to justify being away uh, from my family a little bit more than I am right now. Cause I'm home all the time. And, and I think my family would appreciate me being away a little bit at times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but uh, No, I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm uh, just, you know, autograph appearances. I've actually done a lot of stuff for the Pacers this year. Uh, as, as opposed to last year when I was kind of working for them and Fox doing, doing color commentary and, and or not color commentary, but pre and post game and, and then color on the radio. Uh, but this year I've been doing more appearance stuff and, and community stuff for the Pacers. Uh, and that's been more fun and, and easier on my, my travel schedule. Uh, but uh, that's that's what I do and, and uh, stuff like this, man. So thanks for having me on. No, I want to thank Scott Pollard for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Scott, before you go, I got three quick questions to play us out. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. What is the most ridiculous purchase you made with your first NBA contract? Oh, jeez. Uh, I'd like to say I didn't. I guess the most ridiculous thing I did, I, I got my college car, which is a rusted out POS 69 Cadillac sedan, no, Coupe de Ville, uh, convertible. I thought that it wasn't rusted out, and it was but I had the whole body redone and I had bullhorns put on it like boss hogs car from the Dukes of hazard. And then I found out after I did all that and spent all that money and put a stereo in it, like an idiot that it was all rusted out and I had to get rid of it anyway. 
Well, you know, I was about to say that's awesome until you told the, the last part of the story. And, well, you know, casualties happen. Um, yeah. What player from the years you played is most underappreciated? Gosh. Uh, Hito Turkaloo. That guy was awesome. He was a glue guy. Everybody loved him. He put up numbers like nobody's business and just went about his business in a very, very nobody really paid attention to him. I, I swear we, he was just dominating people, but everybody was focused on pages Stadakovic right. and Chris Weber and Hita would come in and give you 30 and people are like, he just scored 30. Yeah. He dominated you. He won, we won because of him and you're worried about pages scoring 16 or 18 points. You know, it was, I, I'll, I'll go with Hito. There was a lot of them, but that one popped in. And lastly, who is winning the NBA championship? Well, I thought that Portland was going to put up a bigger fight and, and knock out the Warriors before Steph could come back and, and save the day. Uh, but it's not looking like they're going to have the will to do that. So I hate to be a bandwagon guy, but if Steph, if the Warriors last through this series and Steph can come back for the next series, uh, you know, the, the Spurs continually surprise, but they are old. Like we said, Tim's my age, man. That's old. That's older than dirt. And so I don't know if the Spurs can keep up with them. I really think that uh, that the Warriors can can do it all. There's nobody in the East that can mess with either the Spurs or the Warriors. So it's going to be one of those two. But I got to go Warriors. That's boring as hell, but I understand. Uh, it makes sense. Yep. Uh, he's Scott Pollard. You can follow him on Twitter at Scott Pollard31. Look for the association. When when do you think we can see that? Uh, well, I'm going to have some work in progress screenings in June, uh, but we're, we're, you can't premiere it when you're going to keep for festivals. So we're going to try to get into festivals first. If we don't get into festivals, then we'll do some premieres uh, in a lot of the cities I played in, uh, probably this fall. Once we find out that we, if we get in, then we're going to be in the festivals. But if we don't get in, then uh, it'll be this fall when we find out that you know, we get denied. Uh, uh, then we'll, we'll start releasing it, and it'll probably start in Kansas and Indiana, Sacramento, Boston, if, if I get some friends out there to, to, to lie to me and tell me that I could sell out a theater in Boston, <laughs> we'll do one in Boston. Oh, <laughs> NBA champion, Scott Pollard, thanks for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Anytime, man. That was Scott Pollard, and that was awesome. That guy was great. Uh, couldn't have been more a genuine, friendly guy. I thought that was a great podcast, a great discussion, and it was all him. So I hope everyone else enjoyed it, and there's plenty more podcasts you can listen to. Remember the best way to find them. Get your hands on them, your ears on them. iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. And hey, if you like the show, you can uh, subscribe and maybe even leave a rating. Five stars only. Follow me on Twitter, at BrianBuff13 and at RedTicketBlues. And with all that being said, I'm out of here.